take your Bibles, if you will, and join me in Genesis chapter 22. Not too hard to find right at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 22. Um, If I have not met you, my name is Josh. I serve as the college pastor uh, here at Alliance, and I'm thrilled to bring the the message this morning uh, from a text that is close to my heart. Um, Today is a big day for our family, uh, September the 10th. Um, that is the sound right there that we were listening to for the very first time 15 years ago. Um, so September the 10th, 2008, uh, my, my wife and I looked at each other in a hospital room, uh, completely lost as to what to do with this thing they handed us called a baby, our first son. Um, so today's a special day. So happy birthday to my, my oldest son, uh, Ryan. But you know, when you're, when you're in the hospital with your, with your first uh, child, um, you have no idea what to do. So you're really thankful for everybody who's working there in the labor delivery unit. They do everything for you for two days. And then they pack you up and they send you home. <laughs> and uh, you have no idea what is coming. Um, it's just unbelievable. So they packed us up. They sent us home, I guess around the 12th, 13th, something like that. And uh, we began our trek home. And something interesting uh, that, that happened that day, um, I, I was, man, I was so thrilled. I was over the moon. I was elated. I've got my, my firstborn son here, and I'm so excited. And so I'm a celebratory person. I just love to celebrate. I, I'll come up with any reason to stop and, and, and get some donut holes, you know. And so we're on the way home from the hospital. We've got about a 45-minute ride uh, from Asheville to Marion, where we were living at the time. And I pulled into a gas station. That was combined with the Dunkin' Donuts. Now, I hope none of you own one of those right now. Tell me later if you do, but that's usually not an awesome idea. You know, they're taking money and and then they're serving you donuts and whatever, but I didn't care, man. I was in a big celebratory mood. So I'm in there for a while and I'm getting the biggest, what's the biggest box of donut holes you got? 50 count. Give it to me. How many blueberries can you fit in there? How many chocolates? Those are my favorites. You know, you, you guys know. And so I come out with this big box in my hand and I'm swinging that thing. I'm just happy about life. And I get to the car and something has transpired that I had no knowledge of. And it was this, (laughs) that my, my wife and my two or three day old son and my mother are sitting there in the car and he is screaming his head off. I mean, he just, and he looked like he'd been at it for a while, you know, by the look on my wife's face. So I look over at her and there's this look of sheer terror on her face, like, make it stop. I don't know what to do right now. You know, we're just clueless. And my mom is looking at me with this look on her face like, son, now ain't the time. So I throw the donuts in there. Those are the most miserable donuts I've ever eaten in my life, by the way. I throw those donuts in the car and we head off for home. 45 minutes of, of, of unending screaming and we make it finally to the house. And, uh, and it, like we're all relieved to get out of that car because it's echoing off of everything. And so uh, we walk in. I want you to imagine that the story ended differently, though. I want you to imagine for a second that we walked in and I turned the corner in my living room and I come in with my wife and and my my mom and I've got this carrier on my arm, you know, with this little bundle of joy in there. And there's an angel posted up in my living room on my couch who looks at me and says, I've got a message for you. And I'm standing there with my jaw on the floor and the angel says, Tomorrow morning, I want you to take your son, 
your only son whom you love. I want you to go up on that mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to the Lord. This passage is deeply, deeply personal for me. And I've wrestled with this passage because it's difficult for a number of years. I'm a father of five. I can't imagine any one of my kids, an angel coming to me and saying that. That's exactly what happens in Genesis 22, 1 through 19 with Abraham. And so we're going to read that in just a moment. The title of the message this morning is The Lord Will Provide. The Lord Will Provide. So let's read that text together. Genesis 22, 1 through 19. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw, very important word in this text, he saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then... We'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place, in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you've done this thing and not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and they went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. I think we have to start out by acknowledging this is a shocking passage. 
It ought to shock our sensibilities. I doubt that there's any disagreement on that point. If you're not shocked, I would say it's either because you're asleep this morning, you haven't had enough coffee, you know, maybe you're sleeping, or because you have heard this passage taught and explained and kind of like maneuvered around in such a way that the pressure points are relieved in this passage for your mind. The intellectual tensions that ought to twist our brains into knots, those have been removed by the way things are explained and just kind of set aside. The reality is this is a challenging text for anyone if we really step into the story with our hearts and with our minds, with our imaginations. And so I would say this, it is crucial that we learn to read the Bible as the Bible comes to us. The Bible was not written yesterday. It was not written last week. We need to take off our modern lenses and we need to read the Bible with ancient eyes. We need to hear it with ancient ears. We need to step into the world of Scripture instead of trying to make it conform to our modern mindset. We need to go back into the time of the Bible and observe it in its world and interpret it in its world. What is God saying at that time to those people And then come back into our world and say, what is he saying to me today? That is the correct way to approach Scripture. That's how you put the timeless principles of the Word of God into practice. And so this morning, I've arranged the message under three simple headings. I think you'll be able to see them right there in the text. Very simply, it's Abraham's test, Abraham's response, and God's resolution. Abraham's test, Abraham's response and God's resolution. Let's look first at Abraham's test in verses one and two. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm a college pastor. I spend my my Sunday nights here down in the gym teaching a room full of students every single Sunday night. And some of you may say, well, Josh, it's been a few years, maybe a few decades since I've been a student. That may be the case, but I promise this. I promise you all remember what a test is. You all have faced tests at different points. And we all understand this. At some points, the tests shift away from history and calculus and they move into life situations that push us to our limit. They move into real world things that aren't solvable on paper. There isn't a black and white answer like a calculus problem. But I would imagine none of us have ever faced a test like the one Abraham had to face. The thing that we need to remember when we come to this text is what it says in verse 1 very clearly, if you look at it, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. You and I today have the benefit of the Word of God clarifying for us what this is. This is a test, and we have the advantage, praise the Lord, of knowing what this is. But if you go back thousands of years to where Abraham was in that moment in his life, he did not know that this was a test. I repeat, only a test. He did not understand that. Maybe that makes us uncomfortable. Like maybe you're jotting that down in the margin of your your notebook right now. Say, this this is kind of hard for me to stomach, hard for me to swallow. Maybe it seems really random to you that God would have one of his servants to do this. Maybe it seems horrific to consider, but I want you to remember something very important. In the same way that you and I do not start our lives As children of God, we're creations of God, but we're not children of God yet. We don't start that way. We start out as enemies of the cross. Abram did not belong to Yahweh at the beginning of his life. In fact, if you do some research and dig in, he actually was worshiping, he and his family were worshiping the lunar gods of the Chaldean mountain region. 
He and his family, he was called to leave his family and to leave his gods behind when he's following this God, Yahweh. And Yahweh is revealing things to Abraham, Abraham as the story goes. And so you need to remember, Abraham comes out of a pagan background. He comes out of a background of, of godlessness in the terms of knowing Yahweh. He was steeped in pagan, pagan religious practices at that point, which commonly included child sacrifice. Now, why am I telling you that? Here's why I'm telling you. Because all Abraham knew of the regional gods of the Chaldean mountains was they practiced child sacrifice. And he didn't know Yahweh intimately yet. So he doesn't know, if you step into that point in history, he doesn't know that perhaps this God Yahweh who has called him might not just ask him to do the very same thing that the, all the other regional gods are doing. Molech, the God of the Ammonites, was represented by a bronze statue with outstretched arms. It was a bull with big horns and arms that were outstretched. And worshipers of Molech would take an infant and they would place the infant in the arms of this statue, Molech. Well, that didn't sound so bad. Like, what's going on there? They would heat up this bronze statue. The worshipers would, would literally set the statue ablaze on fire and they would place the infant alive in the arms of the statue to seek fertility. Now, how they worked around, like we've been fertile and we're gonna ask for more fertility by getting rid of the results of our fertility. I don't understand that, but that's what was happening in pagan cultures. And so you need to remember that was Abraham's schema to use a teaching frame. That's what, that's what he knows. He know, that's his experience, if that makes sense. We have to read this like Abraham would have lived it. And so we see things from the other side of Calvary. We would ask the question, why would God put a man through something like this? But Abraham couldn't know that. What he did know, though, was that this God, Yahweh, had been immensely faithful, as Shauna talked about earlier. When she said that, like, just bells went off in my mind. He knew this God had been faithful to this point. This God had been good to him, and he had every reason to take God at his word. But now in the story, it feels like maybe this God has changed his mind. Take this son you love so much and go to the land of Moriah, which later would become the site of the temple, and offer him as a sacrificial offering. If I'm Abraham, I'm going to try, try to fake the, you know, the, 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 the cell phone thing here and go, oh, wait, wait, sorry, God, I think the call broke up. I didn't quite get that part. I missed that. Can we go to the next thing? Scripture records a different response from Abraham. In verses three through eight, we see Abraham's response. Look at his response. It says, the next morning, he begins his long, slow, sad journey in verse three. The next morning. Three things about Abraham's response stand out to me in this text. His obedience was immediate. His obedience was sustained. And his obedience was unflinching. It was, obe it was obedient, immediate, sustained, and unflinching. What does that mean? It means this, he was obedient the next morning. He doesn't wait until he feels like it. God, I just don't, I don't feel like getting up early and doing that tomorrow. He doesn't give up when doubts creep in. One commentator said he, he, he didn't have all the facts, but he settled in his mind, I'm gonna leave this difficulty with God. In other words, he said, this is not my problem. This is God's. How is God going to work this out? He obeyed immediately in a sustained way and unflinchingly. How do we do that today? That's the question. How do we do that today? I love what Augustine said so long ago. He said, give me grace, O Lord, to do as you command and command me to do what you will. 
Well, that's great, right? Listen to the next part. Oh, holy God, when your commands are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. When we obey, God gives us through his Holy Spirit the power to keep obeying. We, we ask for grace. We ask for mercy. Lord, I want to be faithful, but I need you to bless me with your spirit in order to do these things. And so as we obey, as we set out on that journey the next morning, so to speak, God gives us along the way what we need to obey him. We set our minds on obedience and God gives grace to do the rest. Verse four tells us how long the journey lasted. How long did it last? Three days. Three days. There seems to be a pattern here in the scripture that is connected to this theological theme of restoration that seems to happen around this three-day time period. Three days Isaac journeyed right here in this passage under a death sentence. He had no idea, but he's walking towards his death. Three days Jonah sat in a figurative tomb with seaweed, he says, wrapped around his head in the fish's belly before he was belched back up on the land and resurrected, if you will. Three days Saul sat in darkness, waiting for someone to come and and, and bless him and help him, and he received his sight back, and the light came in three days. And then three days Jesus spent in a literal tomb before he was bodily resurrected. Sealing and cementing our salvation and our future. Maybe God's up to something here. But again, we got to come back and read this story from a human standpoint. When you think about three days, think about the three longest days of your life. What have they been? The three longest days of your life. Three days can be a long time. It can be an eternity to sit on something. You're waiting for the call to come in from the doctor and you've got to sleep three nights and you've got to work through three days and be focused. You're waiting for, for, uh, for your child to come back to the Lord and they've said, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to, to church with you on Sunday, mom and dad. And it's Thursday and you've got Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Three days can be a long time when you've got so much time to think. Can you imagine being Abraham? And you're walking beside the sun you have waited for for years. And you've got to walk three days out into this wilderness. What do you do? You start to worry. You start to waver. That's what we do as human beings. We worry and we waver and we come up with all kinds of reasons why maybe what I'm doing is not what I'll be doing. Maybe I need to turn around and go home. Maybe I heard him wrong. Maybe it's just indigestion from the pizza I had last night. Who knows? I love what James Boyce says right here. He says, as Abraham weighed the situation, he concluded that even though he couldn't see any resolution in this situation, this God who had been so faithful to him in the past could be trusted again. Despite whatever his feelings might suggest, We live in a culture that is enamored, infatuated with feelings. Here's how I feel today. I'm going to make everyone around me bow to the whims of my feelings. Despite what his feelings suggest, Boyce suggests that the question on Abraham's mind actually appears to be, how can God be true to his promise if I go through with this? How's God going to remain a God of honor if I slay my son? 
Verse four, he lifted up his eyes and he saw. I told you that word saw is important. He saw the place far off. The word saw is intentionally placed throughout this passage to teach us something. He looks up this first time in verse four and he saw the mountain where the son of promise was to be slain. And he told his servants something miraculous. This boy was probably a teenager by now at this point. He says, me and the boy, we're gonna go over there and worship. That'd be a hard word to get out, wouldn't it? We're going to go over there and worship, and then we are going to come back to you. How do you explain that? How do we reconcile that? Why did he say that part about we? Well, Hebrews 11 gives us a clue. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says, when you let Scripture compare Scripture with each other, Abraham believed he was about to witness a miracle. Listen to Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Hebrews clarifies for us, post-cross, post-resurrection, what was going through Abraham's mind, that he believed that if he did this thing, somehow he was gonna see a miracle and God could raise his son back to life and give him to him. Eventually, they're on this journey and Isaac breaks the silence. He was no stranger to this. He wasn't a two-year-old. He had seen animal sacrifices before. He had smelled the blood. Perhaps he had cleaned off the knife and removed the hair. He knew what this was like intimately. And he's walking with his dad and he says, this is the piercing question of the text. Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? We've got everything else. We got the fire. We got the knife. We got the, where's the lamb? And I can imagine with a lump in his throat, Abraham swallows hard and he says, God himself will provide the lamb. Let's keep walking. In verse nine, we come to God's resolution. They get to the place, they build an altar and Abraham does the unthinkable. Now, I don't know if he told Sarah what he was going to do, but if she was there, I'm sure she would have pitched a fit. He takes the rope and he ties his son up. And he's built this altar and he picks up, like I'm imagining me picking up my 15-year-old that's about my size at this point, you know? There's nobody to help the old man. And he picks his son up and he places him on the altar after he's tied him up and something is strangely missing in this text. Do you, do you see what it is? It's protest. If I'm Isaac, I'm gonna be shouting for those servants who are who knows how far away from me. Help! Somebody come get, this man's lost his mind. But there's nothing. He doesn't say anything. He just submits to the will of his good-hearted father even in the face of this unthinkable situation. The father reaches out and takes the knife. He raises it up into the sky and he's preparing to plunge it into his son. How long he held it there, we don't know. He's holding the knife in the air and God steps in. God enters in. God intervenes into this moment and the angel of the Lord calls out to him. In verse 13, the text says, Abraham lifted up his eyes. And here's that word again, he saw. What did he see? He saw a sacrifice. 
He saw something else. He saw a sacrifice ready and waiting to be put in place of his son. Just like he believed God would provide and God has provided. Verse 13 says he offered up the ram in the stead of his son. Don't miss the theological freighted language. In the stead of, in place of. What Abraham saw was that God had provided a substitute in place of the boy. Isaac was as good as dead. Isaac was a foot and a half from death. But Hebrews 11 says that he was resurrected and restored to his father. You know what the word, the root word for provide in this text is? This, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word ra'ah. You know what it also means? It means to see. You can take an equal sign, basically, and put between the word provide and put between the word see. They are synonymous in this passage. To say that God provides and God sees, it means essentially the same thing. That God will provide means God will see to it that a lamb is provided. All of us post-resurrection are going, wow. God will see to it that a lamb is is provided. But do you understand, this was the continual refrain of the prophets over and over and over in the Old Testament. That was the question between the Testaments. Where's the lamb? You remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus shows up on the scene? What was the first thing John the Baptist said? John chapter one. He said, behold, look. That word means pay attention. Don't miss it. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did lambs take away sin? They were led to the slaughter. They were put on the altar. A knife had to be taken to their body to remove the guilty stains of the sinner. Lambs were innocent substitutes. We fast forward to Isaiah 53. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, singular, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Is Isaiah talking about Isaac? Is Isaiah right here, 700 years BC? Is he looking back? Or is he looking forward to another son? He's talking about another lamb, another son of promise who would not be spared but who would be that sacrificial substitute put on that altar in place of everyone who would trust in his name. Verse 14, what did Abraham name the place? They were, they were great about this. They had significant name. You know, we have the depot room and we have all this stuff. You know, they love to name things in the Old Testament. What did he name the place? Look carefully. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Now, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. That, that's future tense. Why did he say the Lord will provide? Why didn't he say, grammatically speaking, the Lord has provided? This is the spot he did provide. Why is he not in the present? Why is he not in the past? Why is he naming the place something in the future tense? John 8, 56. You see the arrow right there? I'm helping you out. John 8, 56 has the answer. 
In John chapter 8, Jesus was in a heated argument with the Pharisees. And what did the Pharisees claim to be? Sons of Abraham. Sons of this guy who obeyed by faith. But they thought they were sons of Abraham because of their good religious works. Look at all the things we've done. Look at the verses we've memorized. Look at all the people we've put down and lifted ourselves up. Look at all those things. They asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus responds like this. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What does that mean? I think what Jesus is saying is this. I think he meant that standing on Mount Moriah, which would later be the site of the temple, and some say the site of Calvary, significant location. I think he's saying Abraham saw another father who did not spare his own son, but gave him up as a substitute for anyone whosoever would believe by faith. Abraham learned something very important that we need to learn today. Abraham learned that this God, Yahweh, was not like the gods of the world. He was not like the pagan gods of his family. He had to leave those gods and come to know this God. And this God is the God who sees to it that the perfect lamb will be provided so that we might live eternally. Let me ask you a very simple question that probably is going to land in your lap like it did in mine. Did Abraham have every little detail in place to sit down and make a pros and cons list? Did he call Sarah over and go, hey, like, here's what he's wanting me to do. Was it clear how the future was gonna unfold when he was in the moment of testing? Not at all. But he knew enough about the heart of this God who had been faithful to him and good to him. And when he could not understand, he placed his confidence in this God who had called him and he obeyed. Look at the rest of the story, verses 15 through 19. We'll start in actually uh, 16. Halfway through, he says, because you've done this thing and not withheld your son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You know what that means? All the nations, that's all the unbelieving people groups outside of God's people. That's the world. That's me. That's you. We are blessed through Abraham's faith and what he did. Listen, God's purposes are not often very clear to us, are they? We can't map it out like a football playbook. But his character always is good. We have to remember not to forget in the dark what he's revealed to us in the light. Now, our tendency, you say, what do we do with this, Josh? Like Tuesday at lunchtime, Thursday evening at at our family devotion time, Friday morning when I'm talking to my boss and, and having a difficult conversation. What do you want me to do with this, Josh? This is like almost too big of a passage for me to like sort of shrink wrap down into my week. What do I do? Well, let me say this. I've thought long and hard about this and here's where I am personally. Maybe God's applying this differently for you, but here's where I am. I think our tendency sometimes is to take a biblical text and to immediately ask the question, what does this mean to me? Me, personally. That's kind of a 21st century Western mindset. I don't know that that's exactly the thrust of every passage or even this passage. Here's what I think is happening here that we need to stand on and sit in this week. I think God was revealing himself to Abraham. 
I'm Jehovah Jireh. You can trust me. You need to understand, Abraham, I'm vastly different than every other God you've ever heard of, ever known. And 2,000 years later, the message I think is still the same for us. God is different from all the other religious leaders and all the high-minded philosophies and all the rational explanations that are out there from college professors on campuses that want to take apart a student's faith. This God is different. He did provide. What he said he would do, he has done for us. And we have the advantage of being post-cross and post-resurrection and seeing that Jesus was the ultimate son of promise who was provided in fact so that all we have to do is pray a simple prayer like Peter when he was going down on the water and he didn't have all the theological terms in that moment because the water was filling up his mouth. He said, Lord, save me. It's that simple. We can call on the name of God and we can ask Jesus to save us through his offering up of his life on that altar. That's where this passage in Genesis 2 is 22 is going. It's going to that cross. That's the altar that we count on, that we kneel before, that we, we celebrate when we gather today. And so I'm suggesting this, that God wants us to learn the same lesson that he is the God who, who, who did provide and who will provide. He didn't miss a single detail of Abraham's journey. He didn't say, hey, in three days, I'll meet you there on that mountain. I'll see you later. He was right there. He wasn't a single second late in stopping Abraham from carrying out that gruesome task. He was right on time and he's fulfilled every single promise concerning his plans for Abraham's family. Here's what I'm saying to you today. We can trust our God. He is good. He is faithful. He has provided. He will provide. We don't have all the answers as we walk through the darkness. We're not gonna know everything, but here's what Psalm 23 tells me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. Today, you know what shepherds do? They drive their sheep. You know what they did back then? They led them. And the sheep knew the shepherd's voice and they followed them. Here's what that means. When we're going through the difficult, dark, deepest valley and we can't see anything around us, above us, and all we see is the few steps in front of us, our shepherd is going before us. He leads us. He's in there with us. That's the promise of the scripture. You can take that to the bank. We can trust our God. He will provide. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm grateful for this text. I'm grateful for how you have ministered to me through it. How you have challenged me to really think hard about what it means to trust you, to walk with you, to not lose sight of you, to not forget your promises, but also to obey what you have very simply called me to do. Lord, I, I pray in accord with Augustine's quote from earlier, that you would give us your spirit. Give us this church, your people, your spirit. To help us be obedient 
that you would give us the power to obey further as you lead us along. Jesus, thank you for being the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, who leads his people to still waters, green pastures, and even through the deepest, darkest valley. My prayer this morning is for the person in this place, number one, who does not know you as their shepherd and does not have the promises of Psalm 23 to personally hang on to. I pray for today to be the day of a faith response, believing on the name of Jesus and being saved. And I pray second for the person who is going through that difficult valley, that dark place, that something in this text, Lord, would bolster their heart, strengthen their faith, give them the resolve to not just make it through this week, but Lord, to walk in humble, joyful surrender to you today, tomorrow, and the next day. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us in your word. Thank you for speaking to us through your spirit. Nourish us, your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.